please turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 5. This is where we will be focusing our attention this evening. Psalm 5, give your attention to the reading of God's word as it is read uh, in the midst of his people. Psalm 5 says, To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm and what you reveal in it through this prayer of David. Give our attention to it. May you use your word to conform our minds to Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it shouldn't come as a surprise to you if I were to tell you that this life is full of trial and anguish. Even in the broadest of ways, you may look around the world and get anxious about the direction that we are headed. There are wars. There are threats of financial difficulties. You look at our country and see significant division. And even more than that, it feels as though the significance of Christianity is on a downward spiral. We, we may even fear that we would endure persecution within our own country. Maybe even in recent years or months, people have not just politely disagreed with you because of your Christian convictions, but maybe people have outright opposed you. A threat to lose a job, a threat of property damage, or even insults and threats of physical harm because you claim the name of Christ. These kinds of things are not new. In fact, this is the type of concerned emotional state that David has while he is penning the psalm. The psalm is not clear about what exactly David is distressed about. People have various theories, uh, specifically regarding where the psalm is placed and what the superscriptions say uh, in the surrounding psalms, but it's not totally clear. But it does express quite clearly that David is distressed and that David feels threatened by people who he labels as his enemies. He feels anxious and beat down. 
rather than wallowing in his distress and fear about what is to come, he approaches the Lord. David knows that the Lord comforts and protects the righteous. So he can confidently trust that the Lord will hear his prayer. So we gather from Psalm 5, a pulse that beats throughout the whole psalm. There's a thread that ties everything together. And it's just a simple teaching, simple sentence, and it's just that the Lord protects the righteous. The Lord protects the righteous. We'll see this in two ways. First, in verses 1 through 7, we see that the Lord listens. And second, in verses 8 through 12, we will see that the Lord leads. And through these things, we will see that the Lord protects the righteous. So first, let's give our attention to verses 1 through 7, where the Lord listens. David begins his prayer as a whole by asking that the Lord would pay attention. Verses 1 through 3 say, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. There's urgency in David's prayer. He's begging for the Lord's attention. This is not a routine mealtime prayer. This isn't casual for David. Something's happened and it's urgent. David is in distress. He needs the Lord's attention now. So he urgently calls upon the Lord. He says, give ear. Consider, pay attention. So notice that David calls on the Lord and he says, my king and my God. Here we have the king of Israel recognizing that his power is limited and that he needs a king to protect him. David knew what it meant to have power. He was a king. And yet, rather than relying upon his own power, he looks to the Lord the God and the true King of Israel. He knows that it is only the living God who is truly capable of answering the prayers of his people. He knows that it is only the living God who can help. In verse 3, David makes this very clear. He says that his hope is that in the morning the Lord will hear his prayer. Then David promises to prepare a sacrifice. Now the language here is rather interesting. What's interesting is that the phrase at the end of verse 3 that says he will prepare a sacrifice is ambiguous. So it's translated as prepare a sacrifice, but it can also be translated as uh, direct or arrange words. So David might be saying, I will arrange my words to you. And it's difficult to translate this because the, the Hebrew literally just says, I will arrange. So translators say, well, what are you arranging? Are you arranging a sacrifice? Are you arranging words? What's going on? I think, just to keep it really simple, I can explain my reasoning later, but to keep it simple, I think he's talking about his, his words. He's arranging his words rather than arranging a sacrifice. So the idea is that David will arrange his words before the Lord so that he will make his case before them. Like a lawyer trying to make a case before a judge. Then he says that he will watch for what the Lord will do. He trusts that the Lord will listen to him because he knows that the Lord protects the righteous. But what is it that informs his confidence here? Why does he bother praying to the Lord? If he's being persecuted by enemies, why does he spend time carefully articulating these words? 
in fact, the most common objection to the Christian faith, as I'm sure you know, is that if God is good, why does he let bad things happen? So maybe that question is circulating in his mind. Doubt might be creeping in. Why why should he even bother asking the Lord for help? God's not proving to be good here. How could a good God let David get into this mess that he is in? The advice of the world would say, hey, David, this God thing doesn't seem to be working out for you very well. Maybe you should just give it up and try something else that actually works. won't get you into trouble. But David doesn't take that advice. Rather, his faith is rooted in something deeper than what works or what doesn't work. He knows that the Lord listens. The Lord has revealed himself as a listening God. The Lord is the protector of the righteous. He listens to the righteous. And so in verses 4 through 6, David explains why he knows that the Lord will listen to him. He says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. David's boast is in the Lord's character. It is because of who God has revealed himself to be that David takes comfort in him. God has revealed himself as a God who does not take delight in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with him. Now, I don't want to skip over the fact that there, these verses make a jarring claim. It's easy for us to read this. We, we come across uh, these verses that say, you hate all evildoers, and we want to just skip over it. We read, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And we just, okay, that's, that's fine. It says that. I don't know how to deal with that. I'm going to move on. This is not the type of message that our world likes to hear. This isn't the type of message that many Christians like to hear. And so when we come across it, we get squeamish. We, we don't know what to do with it. It's one of those claims that the Bible makes where we start to squirm. We immediately start to ask questions. Why did... Well, does it mean that, literally? Or is there a better way to understand that? What what does that say about me, an evildoer? Does that mean that the Lord hates me? So some might read this and try to soften it and claim that David was just overly emotional about his situation, basically made this up. He read his theology into the text, or, or into God. He read his emotions into it. Or others might soften it with the phrase, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Maybe you're familiar with a phrase like that. But let's be careful here. That's not what these verses say. It doesn't say, you, Lord, hate what evildoers do, and the Lord abhors the attitude of the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. No, it says that he hates them. Why? Because they stand in complete opposition to the Lord's holiness. They're rebels against God. It's not as though God's enemies are people who are just generally good people and just happen to do a few bad things occasionally, but God just decided this group of people, I just don't like them, just because. That's not how God chooses who his enemies are. His enemies rebel against him. The Bible is very clear 
that God's enemies are his enemies because they are wicked down to the core. Their heart and their desires are completely opposed to the Lord. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so you might read this psalm or similar passages and think, wait a second, what about me? I'm wicked. Does this mean that God hates me? What, what gives? What, what's going on here? No, that doesn't mean that God hates you. Because in Christ, the Lord has wiped away all of your sin. He's given you the righteousness of Christ. Yet when we're reminded that the Lord hates evildoers, we do not boast in our place as justified before God. Instead, we have a sober reminder of who we are outside of Christ. We have a reminder of what we deserve, which is the destruction and the wrath of God. And it is because of this that our response should be that of praise. And this is what David does. In verse 7, David says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. David's desire is that he would enter the Lord's house and bow down in the Lord's holy temple. But he's not just promising to enter the Lord's temple as some sort of give-and-take promise, saying, Lord, if I do this, if I scratch your back, will you scratch mine? Or, I promise, if, if you do this for me, if you deliver me from my enemies, I promise I'll go to church more. I promise I'll go to temple more. That's not what David is doing here. That's David is alluding to something deeper about what the temple represented about the temple itself. What made that place more desirable than wherever he was when he was praying the psalm? What was it? The presence of the Lord was there in that temple. So David desired nothing more than to be in the presence of the Lord because when he was in the presence of the Lord, not even the strongest of his enemies could harm him. Kids, when you wake up in the middle of the night with a nightmare, what do you do? I hope that you probably go to mommy and daddy's room for comfort. That's what I did when I was a kid. And why do you do that? Because when you're in the comforting arms of mommy and daddy, there's no monster that could harm you or scare you. Mommy and daddy are there to protect you. And that is exactly what David is doing. He's running into the arms of his heavenly father. Do you realize that you can do the same thing, brothers and sisters? In the fiercest of temptations, when the assaults of Satan feel too strong, we're not powerless and without protection. We can enter right into the presence of God. So this prayer is a the picture of Christ, who experienced the wickedness of the world just as we do, yet without falling into, te- into the temptation of sin. As 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 23 put it, for to this, that is when he says for to this, Peter's talking about suffering while doing good. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself 
to him who judges justly. So it's not David who's our example here in this prayer. Rather, he serves as an Old Testament window into our example and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, even in a world that is steeped in wickedness, do not be afraid to entrust yourself to the Lord who judges justly. For he will listen to you and he will protect you. Not on behalf of your righteousness. It's not because you come to church week in and week out, morning and evening. But it's because of his faithful promise to be a God to us and to our children. And it is because of the righteousness of Christ living in our behalf that he clothes us in righteousness. So the prayer continues and the tenor shifts from what's present to what is to come. We continue to see that the Lord protects the righteous. In verses 8 through 12, we see that the Lord leads. Verses 8 through 10 say, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. David is again asking that the Lord would protect him. His enemies are so opposed to him that he is surrounded on every side. He doesn't just want the Lord to go before him because it would make his life a little easier. He's not lazy. He's not being timid. He's not shy about going in front of, uh, about taking the next step. He's surrounded by enemies. He needs the Lord to lead him because he's surrounded on every side and he can't conceive of any other way that he could survive this situation. In order for the Lord to protect the righteous, he must go before his people. So David asks the Lord to lead him in righteousness. John Calvin's comments on this psalm are wonderful. He, he comments on the righteousness of the Lord here. He says that uh, the Lord's righteousness is his faithfulness and mercy which he shows in defending and preserving his people. I think that Calvin's right. David knows that God is faithful to preserve and defend his people. David knows this because of how God has revealed himself to be. When David asks for the Lord to lead him in righteousness, he's asking for the defensive and preserving character of God to meet his enemies before he does. Because God's righteousness destroys sinners. David is, in effect, asking for God to redeem him. God saves sinners through judgment. Remember that God saved Noah by flooding the earth. He saved the Israelites by drowning the Egyptians. And here David is asking for God to save him by going before him and destroying his enemies. In verse 9, David's enemies are described as comprehensively wicked and untrustworthy. A dentist would not be able to find even a small piece of honesty stuck between their teeth. Their morning coffee is a cup of lies. 
Chaos is music to their ears. Destruction is a masterpiece in their eyes. Every word that comes up out of their throat reeks the stench of death. They're like snakes that wait perfectly still until their prey comes just within reach. They jump out to strike it, constrict it, and slowly squeeze its life from it. There's nothing good about these people. They stand totally opposed to the Lord and his anointed king. But verse 10 makes a shift. It shifts from David's vivid description of his enemies to his prayer concerning what he hopes that the Lord would do to them. He pleads his case about what they have done, who they are, and then he offers what he thinks should be done. He needs the Lord's guidance because of these enemies, but he also asks that they would be stopped. So he fires off three imprecations, three petitions of destruction concerning his enemies. He says, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. The first two petitions that he makes are parallel to each other. They're asking for effectively the same thing. The thrust of these petitions is that these enemies would bear the punishment for their own sins. There's no doubt that they're guilty. Verse 9 made that plenty clear. But now David says, make them bear their guilt. There's something quite interesting happening here. Our English translation, make them bear their guilt, uh, is actually all one word in Hebrew. This word is not a super common word in the Old Testament, but it's one that's used in Leviticus, especially chapters 4 through 6 to describe the circumstances of someone becoming guilty and then the remedy for it. The noun version of this word is what's translated as a guilt offering. And so uh, there's something happening here. The word, what's interesting about this, is that this is the only case of this word occurring where it has a causative sense. Every other time it describes something. It describes a person who has become guilty, or it's a prophet proclaiming, you will be held guilty. But here, David says, effectively, make them guilty. The idea isn't that God would impute guilt into these people, but as the ESV translates translates this, it says, make them bear their guilt. Hold them guilty. Don't let them get away with this. So David is praying that the Lord would maintain justice as it relates to these people. The Lord is righteous and he will not let sin go unpunished. This is the same idea as the parallel phrase, let them fall by their own counsels. In both instances, the very thing that these enemies are guilty of is held against them. And thus David is not wrong to ask that the Lord would cast them out of his presence. The wickedness of these enemies of God bears the weight of its own punishment upon them. How? Without genuine, humble repentance, these people ought to be exiled from the presence of God. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, David says. And he raises the most important point at the end of verse 10. For they have rebelled against you. We can get a bit uncomfortable with these kinds of prayers. 
And if we don't get uncomfortable, our brothers and sisters in Christ that are not reformed certainly get uncomfortable. It's easy to grasp that these people have sinned against God. But this prayer, make them bear their guilt. Let them fall by their own counsels. That seems to be taking things a bit too far, doesn't it? Are are, Are we allowed to pray this prayer? Are we allowed to ask for such things? Aren't we, too, guilty of sin? Wouldn't this be hypocritical to pray this when we deserve destruction? No, we wouldn't be hypocritical in praying this because when we pray this prayer, we're praying that God would destroy his enemies. And you might think, yeah, but only God knows who his true enemies are. Only he knows who his elect are. And that's fair. But let me remind you that there are two ways that the Lord destroys his enemies. I'm sure that the the way that has been stirring in your mind has been the first, which is destruction in hell. That's easy for us. But we cannot forget about the other way that the Lord destroys his enemies. The destruction of the old man. The destruction of Adam. In other words, we are all in Adam. And in Adam we sin. We are cast out of his presence and under his wrath and curse. And in both cases, the Lord destroys the old man, Adam. Either God will destroy us eternally as we remain unrepentant, or he will destroy us by showing us our sinfulness and breaking us over our sinfulness so that we would turn to him. This is the point that our Lord Jesus makes in Matthew 21. There he is in the temple. He's speaking against chief priests and Pharisees. And so Matthew 21, verse 44, he makes a comment referring to himself as the cornerstone that the builders have rejected. And he says, and to the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Brothers and sisters, have you fallen upon this cornerstone? Are you broken to pieces over your own sinfulness? Are you broken over the way that your flesh stands opposed to the Lord and tries to bring you against him? Do you pray that the Lord would destroy the old man that remains in you? Do not cease to pray these things. As John Owen has so famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Come to Christ daily and fall on this cornerstone you will be crushed by your own sin. When you fall upon the cornerstone and you are broken to pieces, the Lord kills the old man, but he creates a new one in you. He clothes you in Christ's righteousness. He makes you alive in Christ and you are no longer an enemy of God, but you're his friend. And this is where David goes with his prayer. This is the idea in verses 11 and 12 which say, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So here we're seeing the opposite of verse 10. Instead of destruction, we see joy. We see refuge. If you take refuge in the Lord, you will be saved. You will not be held guilty of your sin if you take refuge in him. Instead, there will be joy and exulting in the wondrous saving work of God. 
We deserved to be destroyed by him, but instead we're protected by him. This is amazing. It is all too often that we might read a psalm like this, whether it's this one or others that speak about destruction. And we're surprised at verse 10. We think, how could God destroy people? How could he hate people? And then when we come to verses 11 and 12, we say, yes, of course, this is, this is what's right. Where the Lord graciously protects sinner, we just gloss over it. But this is the opposite of how we should read a passage like this. We should never be surprised at the justice and the judgment of God. We should never lose sight of his holiness and our sinfulness. And at the same time, we should never stop being surprised at the magnificent grace of God in saving sinners. Here I think it's significant that David likens the Lord's protection to a shield in verse 12. When we think of a shield, we often think about things we've seen in a museum. Something from the medieval ages, the Crusades. Maybe we think of something older, like a Spartan shield. Maybe you think of something modern. Maybe you think of a riot shield that a, a police officer might have. But no matter where your mind goes, when I bring up the word shield, we don't think much of the use of shields as we go about day to day. It's something that we kind of have to think, okay, what, what, what type of shield are we talking about here? Because it's not common for us. But in David's day, a shield was a common thing. He was a warrior. He went to battle. And in battle, it wouldn't have actually been David himself who carried a shield. The word that's used here is the word for a less common shield, the larger shield that would cover a, person, a person's body from neck to ankle. And this shield would have been heavy and it would have been carried by a shield bearer who would have stayed at David's right side. He had a defender with him everywhere that he went, even in the most intense moments of battle. And this is how David understands the Lord to be with his people. This is how David understands the Lord's protection. David is not likening the Lord to a shield simply for the fact that he understands that shields stop arrows from enemies. But more than that, he compares the Lord to a shield because of the idea of having complete protection everywhere that he went. Throughout the whole psalm, David is dependent upon the Lord who is near, the Lord who protects the righteous through faith. Now, throughout this sermon, you may have been asking, okay, but what does it mean for God to protect me? Or you might have asked, if it's True that the Lord protects the righteous, and I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness. What form of protection are we talking about here? What's the practicality of this? What's the, what's the upshot? Does this mean I won't get bruised or scrape my knee? Does this mean I won't get in a car accident? I won't get cancer? I won't get emotionally scarred? If these things happen, does it mean that I'm not righteous and the Lord hasn't protected me? Nowhere in the Bible are we promised protection from the pains of life and the effects of sin in this world. We are not promised health, wealth, and prosperity. It's not just protection from every sort of pain in this life. The protection that we have is end times focused. In our death and in the final judgment, we will be spared from God's 
final judgment. And yet, right now, we are saved and we are protected because of the end times breaking in. We have already received God's favor in Christ. We have already received his protection. This does not mean that we don't pray for healing. We do because we trust that God works miracles. Yet our hope is not in what kinds of protections we may have in this life. Our hope and our comfort is not in whether we escape various trials. Our hope and our comfort is that anything can happen to you and you still remain in Christ's hands. We can look at any trial or enemy, look at it right in the face and say, what are you going to do, kill me? We can look at those trials and those enemies with so much confidence because we are in Christ. Not even death itself is a threat. In Christ, the Lord covers us with the righteousness of Christ to be righteous with Christ and to be shielded by Christ. Our hope is that we will not endure the pain of God's wrath but we will be able to delight in the salvation of the Lord. Our hope is that we will be able to dwell with the Lord in a more intimate way. Thus, it is the spiritual favor of the Lord that David has in mind. But it is not only spiritual, because one day the spiritual will become physical. Revelation 21, verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. And the former things have passed away. There's a new creation that is coming. Our hope is found in the protective presence of the Lord. Our hope is that the Lord protects the righteous because we are hidden in Christ, who is the truly righteous one. Amen. Let's pray. O merciful Father, thank you for the truth that is in this text. Thank you for the way that you protect us, your people. And though the various things that happen in life are scary and they cause us much grief, we know that we are held in the palm of your hand. Not a a hair 